No, sir. morning everyone ask that you all come on in and take your seats as we begin our study this morning so glad you all could be here before we get started we're gonna have a word of prayer Our Father who is in heaven, how wonderful and holy is your name. We are so grateful to you, Lord, that we have another opportunity to share your word with one another through this Bible class. Not just in here, Lord God, but also in the other classes that are going on this morning. We pray that you may bless the teachers and the students. That you bless us all to learn just a little bit more about you, Lord. We thank you for all things. In Jesus' name, amen. So good morning again. Today we will be studying the, the book, The Minor Prophet of uh, Zephaniah. If you um, don't have your Bibles, we have a pew, or pew or chair Bibles. It's on page 462 uh, in that Bible. It's on page 1670 in mine. It's between the books of Haggai and Habakkuk, or Habakkuk and Haggai. be great if you, you grab your, your own copies, whereas... Um, electronic or hard copy, because we're going to be looking at some scriptures this morning. Zephaniah. Name of Zephaniah means Jehovah hides. And there, there are folks that have said that this book in particular um, is the least known book in the Bible. It's probably because of the subject matter that is in um, in this book, in these three chapters, in these 53 verses. Uh, it's the most uncomfortable subject in the Bible for many, many folks, many of us, and that's on judgment. Most people would rather be guilty of anything else but judgment or judging um, someone else. It's amazing that Christians as well as non-Christians can quote Matthew 7, 1, where it says, Judge not that you not, excuse me, that you not be judged. But those same Christians as well as non-Christians don't remember or know that 
John 7, verse 24 is in the Bible, too, where it says, Do not judge according to your appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Since the Bible does not contradict itself, there is obviously a time when we can go, we can be judgmental, and the book of Zephaniah shines a light on how God is judgmental. His judgment is just and perfect. Many do not like this book because they believe that this book is only about God's judgment. But as we will see, it is not just a book about that. So a little bit more background on this book of Zephaniah. Again, Zephaniah's name means Jehovah hides. Um, Zephaniah prophesied in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of, uh, king of Judah. It says that in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Josiah ruled from 640 to 609 B.C. And you, you might remember that Josiah was was a great and good king. Uh, Zephaniah 2.13 says... It says there, and he will stretch out his hand against the north, destroy Assyria, and make Nineveh a desolation as dry as the wilderness. So just from that verse there, what God is going to do to Nineveh, we see that Nineveh is still around. Nineveh hasn't been destroyed yet. So Nineveh had not been overthrown, which was in 612 B.C., and Zephaniah can be dated between uh, the years of 640 B.C. and 612 B.C., Hezekiah was succeeded by his son Manasseh, uh, who was 12 years old. It is doubtful that at any period of its history, Judah had a more wicked ruler than Manasseh. Anytime I'm trying to remember any of the kings, I, I try to think about the good ones because there were only a few, right? And there was a whole bunch of bad ones. But the most wicked one that I can think of uh, was Manasseh. And I always think about, well, how did Josiah come through all of that? Uh, not just Josiah, now Zephaniah, how he come from, all of them come from, you know, Hezekiah, uh, Manasseh, and as we will read, Ammon, and then Josiah. Uh, I usually only think about those folks when it comes to Hezekiah, but we need to keep in mind that Zephaniah is also in the lineage of uh, Hezekiah. All these Kaias, you know, you have to remember the Kaias, right? Um, he sought to undo all the good his father had done. Talking about Manasseh. Uh, he, he rebuilt the high places, reared altars to Baal and Ashtoreth, and built altars to the hosts of heaven. He committed the abomination of making his sons pass through the fire, practicing, um, there's a word called augury, but uh, we know it as like divination or trying to tell the future or predicting, uh, predicting the future, and enchantment enchantment, excuse me, and dealing with familiar spirits. To all to all this, he added the sin of bloodshed, filling Jerusalem with innocent blood. You can see Second Kings chapter 21 and Second uh, Chronicles uh, 33 verses 1 through 9. Let's turn to that. Second Chronicles chapter 33. It's important that we get some really good background on what we're going to read and read about in Zephaniah, Second Chronicles, excuse me, Second Chronicles, chapter thirty-three. 
verses 1 through 9. It says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down. He raised up altars for the bells and made wooden images. And he worshipped all the hosts of heaven, and he served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, and of which the Lord has said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Also he caused his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. He practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft and sorcery, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image, the idol which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers. Only if they are careful to do all that I have commanded them, according to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinances by the hand of Moses. So Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. <coughs> Excuse me. So Zephaniah as we continue to think about him, we know that he's, we've talked about already, he's uh, kin to King Josiah by the way of his great-great-grandfather Hezekiah, meaning um, uh, Hezekiah's great-great-grandfather. But they both shared in that lineage, just from different mothers. This will explain why he had extensive knowledge, as we're going to read, of the layout of Jerusalem when he describes the fish gate and the market in Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. It also gave him a front row seat to what was wrong in Jerusalem, especially and specifically to Judah. Uh, his prophecy would have been pivotal at the time because of the reforms that Joshua instituted. We're going to read a little bit about, excuse me, not Joshua, Josiah, but as we just read about what Manasseh did, I want us just a little bit more to talk about Manasseh. I want you to see the depravity that he put um, and where he took Judah and put um, Jews and God's people. In verse 10 of Second Chronicles 33, it says, And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. Therefore the Lord brought up upon them the captains of, of the army of, of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze feathers, and carried him off to Babylon. I believe, I remember, I think um, Tony was talking about this, uh, read this to us before and taught us about it, but I was thinking about it as I was going through this this week. Studying this, all I can imagine is they hooking him and dragging him, you know, and because of all the things that he did, he was being punished, even though he tried just a little bit to turn back to God. Now, when he was uh, in affliction, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed to him. And he received his entreaty, heard his supplications and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. After this, he built a wall outside the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley, as far as the entrance of the fish gate, and it enclosed Ophel. 
and he raised it to a very great height. Then he put military captains in all the fortified cities of Judah. He took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house uh, of the Lord and in Jerusalem. And he cast them out of the city. He also repaired the altar of the Lord, sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed on the high places, but only to the Lord their God. So turning back to uh, Zephaniah, as we, just before we get into it, I want us to think about this time frame that Zephaniah is, is prophesying. So at the age of eight, <coughs> Josiah came to the throne. And he was the last good king to reign over Judah. At the age of 16, he began to seek after Jehovah, the God of his fathers. And at the age of 20, he began to purge Judah. His reforms were among the most sweeping of any that were attempted by the kings who reigned over the southern kingdom. You know, often when I think about these kings, it's like they had great power. And they said, do it, it got done. I just wish sometimes that was like that for our government. I don't care which party we're in, let's just get it done because it, 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 let's do what's best for the people. And Josiah saw what was best for the people, which was to follow God. And that's what he did. Um, that's what he did. We can learn a lot, I think, from, from Josiah and Zephaniah and Jeremiah and all the other Mayas. And altars, images were alike destroyed and the bones of priests who had offered sacrifices on the altars of the false gods were gathered and burned. In the process of cleansing the temple, a copy of the law was found and read before the young king. Now, many of you may be thinking, well, I already know all of this, but it's important that we lay this background, this, this foundation, because of what we're going to talk about in Zephaniah. Uh, jo- Josiah was alarmed when he heard. He sent a prophetess, Huldah, for a word from God concerning what he had learned. Um, Homer tells us, Homer Haley tells us that the young king calls the newly found word of God to be read in the hearing of the people, great and small. Why he sent um, to Huda and not to Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Nahum, or Habakkuk, all prophets of the period, is unknown. The cleansing of the temple was followed by a Passover, such as had not been observed with like enthusiasm in many years. You can read Second Kings chapters 22 to 23 and Second Chronicles 34 and 35 chapters, that is. It was a time of the reign of this king that Zephaniah prophesied. So with that background, consider this, that while Josiah made reforms and restored ritual worship, the people's devotion was only external, as we saw with in um, Manasseh's time. It was only external. Things got rid. They got rid of things. But, you know, you have to change your mind when it comes to worshiping God. We can't just be outwardly showing that we worship him and we serve him and that we love him. We also have to have that um, in our hearts. And that's a lesson for all of us. Something else I want to point out about uh, Josiah um, and Jeremiah and, and uh, Zephaniah is that they were all estimated to be around in their 20s. We already just read that Josiah, when he started doing things, he changed, making changes, he was in his 20s. They were all in their 20s during, the, during this prophecy or during this time of prophecy. 
I'm reminded that uh, what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Young people can have an impact and have a whole lot of influence, such as these three who did so with God's um, people. Not just during that time, but even now. Young people can have great influence on the young and the old by sticking with God's word. Zephaniah's preaching, when we read here, is sharp and it's straightforward. He may have been considered um, what we call a hellfire and brimstone preacher um, during his day. So again, looking at the text, there are three chapters. I counted about 53 verses. In it, it talks about two things. First, God's judgment on sin. It's very unpleasant to speak about judgment a lot of times. The expression, day of the Lord, refers to sweeping, powerful judgment of God. The sweeping, powerful judgment of God. In chapter 1, verses 7, 8, and 14, and chapters 2, 2, and 3, you'll see the phrase or expression for the day of the Lord. Uh, or you may see the word day or that day. It's about 12 other times um, that you will see it through chapters um, 1 and 2 mostly. The judgment of God, that's what it means. The judgment of God on sin is referenced at least 19 times in this short book. So we're going to look at some examples. Even the earth itself will see the judgment of God. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. Verses 2 and 3. It says, I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume man and beasts. I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks along the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. I mean, Zephaniah starts right in on the road where God does. But talking about, they, people have been sinning. I, I, I thank y'all, hopefully you've been seeing in these studies, as we're studying, whereas the minor prophets or the major prophets, that God is not happy with his people. And so, I mean, we, we get introduced to Zephaniah and they're, okay, this is what's going to happen. The earth is going to be destroyed, everything in it. It's going to be, I'm, I'm going to place my judgment on everyone, on everything. He also singles out Judah in chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, where he says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal in this place. The names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan priests, those who worship the hosts of heaven on the housetops, those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but all who also swear by Milcom. Now, I've read that Milcom could have been a king or Malcolm, an Ammonite god. Also, probably an idol named um, Malak. doesn't matter. They were not worshiping God. They were not seeing God for who he was. Those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of him. Um, these were people that worshiped Baal. People who worshiped heavenly bodies and who mixed worship with God and idols. Now, here's a lesson for us today. We can look like we're doing what God is telling us to do 
and, and worship God the way we're supposed to, that we can look like that. Uh, but then we throw other things, other worldly things that are idolatrous in nature and all of, and all of a sudden, or, or, or all those things that are, um, blending with the worship of God, those idolatrous things and those things that are not proper, we blend those with the things that God wants us to worship with, what we want to worship with. Y'all, y'all feeling me here? I'm, I'm saying that God says do this. Okay, God, but I want to do this also. Now, are we talking about, are we talking about us or are we talking about the Israelites or Judah? It's both. We can be just as wrong in this day as they were then. Let no one tell you that the Old Testament is just there. We don't have to listen to anything that's there. The you know, New Testament tells us it's our schoolmaster, you know, our tutor. We are to look at it and say, you know what, let's let, let us not be guilty of what they were doing. Too often we point and say, those Israelites, they were just, you know, well, need to be pointing at ourselves as well. Let's be careful of that. They had turned away from following God, and um, as we see in verse 6 of chapter 1. So the rest of chapter 1, uh, Zephaniah highlights more sinners and more sin. He explains no sins will be overlooked and that you cannot hide from the judgment of God. Look at verse 12. And it shall come to pass that at that time, this is another phrase here you need to see, that that's the judgment of God on the day of the Lord, um, that I will search Jerusalem with lamps. Meaning, I'm going to be searching high and low. Not that God needs a lamp or a flashlight or something, but the connotation is, I'm coming for you. That's what he's saying. And and he's going to find you. you. You're not going to be able to hide from the judgment of God. You ever, I mean, you, you all see people, hear people talk to folks, and they say, well, you know, God will give me a chance at the end, or I'm going to hell anyway, so what's the difference? Or, you know, these movies... <clears throat> that show the earth is ending, so we're going to go hide somewhere. Like, that's going to do something. It's not. If God if God is searching with a lamp, I'm just saying, God doesn't need one. And I know this is probably um, figurative here, in a sense, that with the lamp, but you're not going to be able to hide from the Lord. Nobody can escape this. Three times he highlights the lie that people tell about God. It says, And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish them who are settled in complacency, who say in their heart, The Lord would not do good, nor will he do evil. Um, verse 15, That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of de- devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess. A day of clouds and thick darkness. This is showing the powerful judgment of God. And, and for those that are not following God, those who have walked away from him, those who are living in sin, and they will say, this is a day of trouble and distress. It is gloomy. It is dark. I'm sad. What am I going to do? I didn't know. I, I just didn't know. I'm talking about members of, uh, I'm talking about people that should be following God. We're going to get to us here soon. Verse 18. It says, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. God doesn't change. 
So if you couldn't buy your way into heaven and into salvation, then you're not going to be able to do it now. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell uh, in the land. All of these verses of God's judgment on them, but we need to remember that um, will apply to us because we will stand before God in judgment as well. We all will. Everyone will. Then we see Zephaniah speaks about the sinful nations around Judah. So he starts with Judah, and they should know better, right? People of God should know better, right? I should see some heads shaking up now. Yes, people of God should know better. But then he is also talking to the nations that are surrounding uh, Judah. Look at, uh, in verses, in chapter 2, verses 4 through 15, God's judgment will go out to all those in every direction. Again, you're not going to, you're not, no one's going to be able to escape God. Uh, the Philistines in the West, he says in verses two, I mean, chapter two, verses four through seven. The Moabites and Ammonites in the East, chapters two, uh, eight through eleven. To the Ethiopians in the South, chapter two, verse twelve. And to the Assyrians in the North. In chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Now you might think, well, Jaylee, you missed like a whole bunch of other people that were in the, in between. Yeah, God's not going to miss them. I'm, I'm just saying that he went, he's going to go north, south, east, and west. And if you're in the way, well, if you're not following God, north, south, east, and west, no one will be spared in the Lord's judgment. No one, then or now. This, Zephaniah came back to his original audience then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Um, so I, I talked about that this book is about two things. Um, and it is about God's judgment, and we see that a lot right now in what we've read. But this book also shows us that um, there's something rewarding in these short three um, three chapters. This book also deals with God's love and restoration to those who are penitent. Toward the end of the book in chapter three, there's a beautiful transition that starts to happen. But before we get there, let's go back to chapter two. Notice that during the middle of this proclamation of judgment, notice that as God is coming down on his people, as God is saying, you're doing wrong, you're doing wrong, you're doing wrong, I'm going to get you, I'm going to get you, I'm going to get you. I've been telling you I'm going to get you. I've had all these other prophets come and tell you that you need to do right. I've had good kings, some of them that were good, and, you know, try to lead you the right way. Josiah right now, Zephaniah is doing this same time. He's trying to show you the way. Y'all haven't read the law in all these years. You've been doing all these bad things. Every generation that comes along seems like we, we, uh, as the kids were telling me when, when they were younger and we were learning about the prophets, man, the prophet would come along and save the people, help them and get them on the right track. Then they would die and the people would just turn right back around and start doing the wrong things. And then uh, uh, they get in trouble and they get put in slavery and then captured and then they cry and moan and pray and God said, okay, I'm going to send somebody else. They, they get free and they love God on 
on the face of it, and then they, the, the prophet is there, and some of the prophets got in trouble too, because they started like loving the, the prestige and stuff like that. But then when they die, and the, and the older folks that were with them, they died, then they just turned back to Satan again. Because it, it don't matter what you call it, Molech or, or Asterisk or whatever, it's Satan. If it's not God, it's Satan. And then they just get in trouble again. It's like a, a cycle, a cycle, a cycle. So, so God is not happy with his people. And maybe I'm not conveying that enough to you all, but God is not happy with us when we sin against him. And we know that even when we're sinning. But God is not happy. And during this time, Josiah is like, um, he's making all these reforms. And yet y'all still like, well, God is not, you know, he's not going to do that. God is a good God. He's not going to do this. And we say that today too, don't we? People say that today. Well, God... The God I serve wouldn't let babies die. The God I serve wouldn't let me be broke. The God I serve, and you insert whatever ridiculous statement that people make, because it is. And God is angry at his folks, at his people, and at the world. We know he was angry at the world when Noah had, you know, built an ark with his sons and Wife and those uh, three three sons' wives. I I don't know who did all the hammering and, and and the tar and all that good stuff, but I just know that they were only eight souls that got on that on that ark. Everyone else died because God was not happy with the world with His children. He let His children go into captivity because He's not happy with them. I need to I need to spank y'all a little bit, and then maybe you'll come back to me. Getting that understanding. And God is upset. But then in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together. <clears throat> o desirable nation, before the decree is issued, or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. I mentioned this on, on Wednesday night. This is what we call repentance, right? God is saying, I'm going to do all of this, but here's a way you can save yourself. Well, you can't. I can save you, but you can repent. You can turn back to me. It, it hasn't happened yet. I'm going to do this, but it hasn't happened yet. We see this um, in the story about uh, Lot. And he goes to, he's in Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham is asking God over and over and over, but what if this many people? It wasn't even 10 people. It wasn't even 10 people that were righteous that would have stayed God's hand. Yet God gave Lot an opportunity. Not just Lot, he gave Sodom and Gomorrah and all those other cities he gave Nineveh an opportunity to turn. And for a little while they did, right? Again, they have not been destroyed yet as we're reading this. But we know later on they are because they just they turn back to what is wrong. God is saying it hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen. It hasn't happened yet. Turn to me. Same thing he says to us. Those of us who've put on Christ. We still need to live a penitent life. We need to repent of our sins and turn back to God. If we haven't put on Christ, we need to repent 
and be baptized for remission of our sins, as as Peter tells us in Acts chapter 2. We need to do those things. It's, it's like, I know we have the Old Testament and the New Testament, but it all goes together. God hasn't changed. God wants us to serve him. And he's given us the opportunity. There's hope. He wants us to only really touch my mind, my heart, some, some weeks ago when, when he said that God is just waiting. He's ready for, just come back to me. He's, he's come back to me. I'm, I'm, I'm ready. Scripture tells us that. I'm, I'm ready to, to forgive you. Just repent. And turn back to me. But what we have seen, well, I don't, I don't know if I want to do it that way. Well, God, I know you want me to worship this way, but I like it this way. So I'm going to do it this way. And you are going to be all right with that. That's what we say to God. You're going to be all right. You better be all right with what I am doing. And if you're not, then you're not the God that I serve. Well, there is no other God. There is no other God. And those folks, or we, are going to be highly disappointed uh, when that day comes if we don't do as he talks about in verses 1 through 3. God appeals to the people that they can come back to him. And again, we know that as repentance. So as we read verses uh, 1 through 3, we see that there is hope. I want you to also consider Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Where the scripture says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but us, uh, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Zephaniah, again, 2, verses 1 through 3, is an example of this. Look at verse 8 of chapter 3. <clears throat> it says there, therefore, wait for me says the Lord, until the day I rise up uh, for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kindness, uh, excuse me, kingdoms, to pour out, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger, all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. Some people do not understand why God judges. Why does he judge? He is speaking here in verse 8 to the people who have turned back to him. The folks that took up his plea in verses 1 through 3 in chapter 2. He says here, wait for me. Look at, look at Isaiah 40 verse 31. You may know this, this verse. Some of, some of you, this is your, probably your, maybe your favorite verse in the Bible. Isaiah 40, verse 31 says, But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. The latter part of Isaiah 49, verse 23 says, For they shall not be ashamed who wait for me. Look at Isaiah 64, verse 4. Isaiah 64, verse 4. It says, Therefore, since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. Wait on me, says God. Wait on me, and I will do what I said I'm going to do. Wait on me. I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do. Wait on me. 
Yes. He, he said, I'm going to judge sin, but I also will remember you and restore you. This is, this is what he said in, in Zephaniah. The same thing he says to us now. Wait on me. Wait on me and I will remember you and I will restore you. Again, some people don't understand why God judges. Well, turn by Zephaniah 3 in verse 9. Here's the reason why God judges. <coughs> Excuse me. For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language, that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. Now, this is not to say that somehow we're going to be speaking in tongues or have something new to say, but the way we think and how we go about life and the things that we do say will resemble our father. We'll show people, I follow God. You, you know what I'm talking about. Think about it. When you at work somewhere or you're around somebody for a long time who isn't a Christian and they go, why are you at, why are you at the way you do? You know, why, why don't you do? You haven't said anything or, or, or as I've often said in here, they know who to come to when they need somebody to pray for them. You hadn't even mentioned anything, but it got to be Jaylene or it got to be, you know, somebody, James or, um, sorry, I'm missing names while I'm up here. I'm trying not to call too many names. I, I know it's you though, because you, you just don't, you don't do what everybody else does. So that's how we will look towards people. And we should, we should be allowing our lights to shine. God's lights shine through us. His judgment purifies the earth and his people. That's why God judges. The promise that he is um, a just God, it purifies those who believe, who repent, and who will be faithful to him. Now it seems from this point, this point on, from verses 7 on, or verses 8 on in chapter 3, there is a victory that's been sounded. I'm going to get you, I'm going to get you, I'm going to get you. Better do what's right, I'm going to get you. That's what it seems like, right? God is coming down on his people. But God is giving hope. There's salvation that's there. And there's victory. We have victory in Jesus, right? We win in the end. Sorry, Tom, I know I stole that from you. Uh, He transitions from speaking about judgment to speaking about Jesus. God's judgment is not meant to destroy, but to purify his people. This would be the result of his judgment. Now, we won't read all the verses here, but for time's sake. But verse 9 to the end of the chapter. Verses 9 to 10 leads them being a worshiping people when God judges. Leads them with a pure language, and they have no shame. Verse 11. People who are meek and trusting. Verse 12. Righteous and confident. Verse 13. Victorious. And have salvation. Look at verses 16 through 17 in chapter 3. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. He will rejoice over you with singing. I'm just thinking about that just now. God is going to rejoice over me with singing. Sure, he sounds a lot better than me. 
He will leave a place for the outcast, eight, verses 18 through 19. And ultimately, verse 20 tells us that he will restore. I want y'all to listen to see how God will do what he says he's going to do. Verses 18 says, verse 18 says, I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly who are among you to whom its reproach is a burden. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all who afflict you. I will save the lame and gather those who were driven out. I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where there, where they were put to shame. Back over to verse 11, it says, In that day you should not be ashamed of any of your deeds. God is saying, In every land where they're going to be put to shame, I will appoint for them praise and fame. At that time, I will, God will, bring you back. He will bring you back. This all points to, this all points to, The blessing of the kingdom of God that is coming. Something that we, I believe, are part of now. And that we will be part of in the future. We are part of the church now. We're part of his kingdom now. We have heard it said that we we have it now, but we don't yet. So we have the church now and we have a, an example of or hope to what is coming. Give me just a moment because I was not able to print the rest of it and I want to make sure that what I want to say gets to you all. Um, we have a church now, but we have heaven to look forward to. How can we understand this? How can we understand Zephaniah? Promises fulfilled already, but not yet. That's what I was trying to say. Blessings realized in the church for those who have come to Jesus and have been brought into his kingdom through salvation, through the gospel. And blessings realized right now, but not at their fullest. We don't have all the blessings that heaven has to offer. Not yet. Or we would never want to leave this place. I look forward to being in heaven. I look forward to being paradise and then in heaven. Paradise is going to be so great. Be better than what we have now. And then heaven will be even better. Um, I can't think of the verse right now. I believe it's in Amos. I can't remember, uh, and please check me, but uh, I remember a preacher saying or showing us in scripture that um, all that we see now, all the things that God has done for us now, it's just on the outskirts the little bit of what he can do for us. It's just like, just a little bit. Kind of like an angel who has so much power and then ten a legion of angels can come and help um, Jesus. I'll be scared because one angel can do so much. God can do even more. Not like what we have in this life to come again. So the book of Zephaniah is about the judgment of God on sin. Remember that. And it's also about the love of God and his restoration to his people who turn back to him. So as we close here in just a moment, six takeaways if, you, if you're writing this down. God is a God of goodness and severity. We also see that in Romans eleven twenty two. God's judgment on sin will be terrible. Everybody will stand before God's judgment, uh, judgment 
and before his throne. And no one, no one, no one will escape it. Not one person. Those who accuse and scoff at God's judgment or persecute his righteous will have to answer for those sins. Victory is the ultimate end for the penitent and the faithful. And lastly, if God says he's going to do something, you better believe it. God will do what he says he's going to do. Thank you all for your attention this morning, and uh, let's prepare ourselves for worship.